Let's bow our hearts and pray. Father, you have the words of eternal life. And these words are hidden in Christ. Therefore, we pray as we just sang, show us Christ. May you display him in all of his glory, in all of his fullness, in all of his beauty, in all of his righteousness to us this morning, so that as we behold him, may everything else, may everyone else fade to the background so that Christ alone would be glorious to us personally, individually. We pray to this end to you because you can accomplish that by your spirit. And therefore, as we bow low to this word, we pray, bow our wills to your will so that what we confess verbally, we may do and we may live up to it, that we may be transformed in our hearts because we know you. What a glorious message, what a glorious gospel. Help us to be rooted in it this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, church. I want to welcome you back to our worship and invite you now to Turn to Matthew chapter 7. It's been a few weeks. It's been three weeks since we've looked at this passage. So this morning we are turning back. Matthew chapter 7, we're looking at verses 15 through 23. Know and be known. Jesus had just finished the main body of the sermon in 712. And as he closes the sermon, he begins to give his listeners contrasting pairs. Last time we were in this chapter, we looked at verses 13 and 14, where Jesus presents two gates and two ways. In our passage this morning, he presents to us two trees, two fruits, and two professions. He will go on in verse 24 to present two builders and two foundations. Listen, two and only two. And he presents two in order to emphasize one. Two in order to emphasize one. He presents for us two possibilities, but he preaches only one. Do you see it here in this passage? Two gates in two ways, but only one leads to life. There are two types of trees. There are two fruits, but only one is good and the other one gets burned. Two professions, but only one professor enters the kingdom of heaven and the other one is cast out. Two builders and foundations, but only One house remains standing at the end. And so by these pairs, Jesus emphasizes his exclusivity. What we need to walk away from this section is that he alone is the way. He alone is the savior. He alone is righteous. There are no two valid options for us. In fact, you can break down all the options and they will all fall into one category. One category. All of the opinions and thoughts and religions and perspectives in the world, Jesus puts it all in one category and he says, this is the broad way. This is the weak foundation. This is the tree that bears bad, evil, in fact, fruit. And then 
He puts himself in a class all on his own and says, choose. Choose this or choose this. But don't just choose. Choose me. Believe in me. Trust me for your righteousness. This is very important. The rest of this chapter will emphasize this over and over again. I want us to read now, beginning with verse 13, to pick up where we left off last time and read all the way through verse 23, and we'll look at these verses in more detail. Jesus says, enter, it's a command, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, and bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These are some sobering words for us this morning as we consider them in order. I want us to just get this overall theme in our minds this morning. What Jesus says is this, there's only one ground for entering the kingdom of heaven and it is a personal relationship with Christ. Only one ground to enter and that is if you know personal, right? Personal relationship with Christ but it is evidenced by a transformed heart that trusts Christ for its righteousness. So one ground, and that is, do you know Jesus personally? And if you know Jesus personally, then your heart is transformed. There's evidence to this transformation. Knowing leads to doing. Knowing leads to being. But the ultimate ground, ultimate rest is in his righteousness. And church, if that is the case, if your eternal destiny hangs on this truth, then listen, the enemy will do everything possible to persuade you otherwise. If there's only one way, then guess what? The enemy will do everything possible to tell you that that is not the way. There are many other ways. There are many other approaches. There are many more schemes. Therefore, Jesus says, right after he mentioned enter, he says this, beware, beware, caution, be careful. And he wants us to beware, be careful about two things. Number one, he wants us to beware of false prophets who lead us away from Jesus Beware of false prophets who lead us away from Jesus. And number two, in verse 21 and following, he wants us to beware of false professors who don't have a relationship with Christ. Beware of influence from outside and beware of influence from within. And so I want us to look at verse 15 first. Beware of the false prophets who lead you away from Christ. Now think about this, how does this section about false prophets connect to what Jesus has been saying in this entire sermon, but especially in the immediate context here? We said over and over, sermon after sermon, that the 
central theme, the, the unifying thread of the entire sermon is his emphasis on greater righteousness. Not that of scribes and Pharisees, but a totally unique, totally holy, the kind of righteousness that surpasses everyone else that he mentions in 520. And by the end of the sermon, Jesus intends for all of his listeners to ask this one sobering question, who then can come in into the kingdom? If your message is about getting into the kingdom and staying in the kingdom, who then can come in? Who is qualified? And the resounding answer to this question is this, those who surrender to me. That's what Jesus teaches here over and over. Who can answer? Great question. Those who are with me. I can get you in. Why? Because I'm the only one who is righteous. So if we believe this is the central point or central emphasis, then what's this warning about false prophets? What's this warning? Listen, in verse 13, Jesus commands to enter heaven through the narrow gate. Who's the narrow gate? Well, if you remember, we said that Jesus is the narrow gate. True discipleship, right, is the narrow path. No other way exists which could usher you, open an entrance, open the door into eternal life except through Christ. One way to heaven, church, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, after plainly stating his exclusivity, he warns his disciples to be careful. Beware, he says, of so-called prophets who teach you any other way, who point you to any other door, even slightly, like close, but not close enough. Like they, they point you in the direction of Christ, but not to Christ. Be careful. There's only one true gospel of Christ, beware of all the other counterfeits. Beware of all the false messengers with their messages. This is a real threat. It's continual. The, the present here in verse 15, beware. He's saying, listen, disciples, Christians, continue to walk in caution. Always be careful, lest you fall prey become susceptible to this message that contradicts the message of the gospel. John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Friends, we gotta trust this message. The Father has given us his only son through whom we can come to know him. In verse 14, look at your Bibles, Matthew 7, 14. Jesus says the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and they are few who find it. It is difficult to find it. It is difficult to stay on it. And part of the problem with finding this gate and staying on it is the competing influences that we face every single day. The opposition that the false teachers present. They offer Ways They offer their wide paths. They offer the ease of so-called discipleship. And Jesus warns his disciples and us this morning, don't leave the narrow path. Don't surrender this gate. Continue to treasure Christ even in the midst of the worst of suffering and persecution or whatever trials you may face because of me. Christ, church, is more precious, isn't he? Didn't he just tell us in chapter six to treasure Christ, seek him above all else and everything else will be added to you? Everything else will be given to you? He is most righteous. He fulfills all righteousness and he offers it to everyone who comes humbly seeking and pleading. Don't abandon Christ. So he says, beware of the false prophets who lead you away from me. And he wants his disciples to know certain things. He wants us to know three things in particular. He says, know their deadly deceit. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They look like sheep. They look like they, 
They belong to me. They look like, like they're mine, but no, they're, their intention is different. Their goal is to mislead. Matthew 24, 11 says that false prophets will arise and mislead many. And then in verse 20 of the same chapter, he says they will do that and they will try to do it to even mislead the elect if possible. That's their intention, to mislead. Here's the reality. The church usually responds pretty well to open heresy, assaults, lies. Like when someone knocks on your door and says, I gotta tell you something, here's a track, you know. Um, yeah, Jesus is, he's the first uh, you know, one in created order, and you already spot that. You know what it's like, you can hear it. That's heresy, right? And so what do you do? You preach the gospel to them and you close the door and say, adios. The church is pretty good at spotting blatant heresy. We are not really afraid of atheists who attack Christianity, right? Because they're obvious. But these messengers, they distract and they mislead people from the narrow gate by making it seem like they are preaching the true gospel, by making it seem like they're part of the flock. And listen, the most dangerous and deceptive individuals or ideas often make their way into the church dressed in a suit and tie, carrying a MacArthur Bible study, sitting on somewhere in the front here. Not saying anything, but I'm just saying. Why? Because they're part of the flock. And this is what Jesus is telling them. Listen, this is their deadly deception. They look good. They speak well. They have degrees to prove it. They are usually very personable, their, their, their personality makes it extremely difficult for others not to like them. They're not like pigs and dogs here that Jesus describes in at the beginning of chapter seven. No, they're likable. They sound right. Yet their intent is to kill. It's to kill. Second Corinthians 11, Paul says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Like their father, their real intent is to kill and to destroy. Listen, what is the, the proper function of a prophet, of a pastor, of a shepherd? It is to feed the sheep. It is to give them the word of God. But look what they do. They feed on the sheep instead of feeding the sheep. Jesus says that what I am teaching you is so important and so precious that you need to be on guard and run from anyone who tries to persuade you otherwise. Only one word matters, church, and that word comes from our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore we ought to test every thought, we ought to test every statement against what Jesus says in the scriptures. But if they're so sneaky and not easily discovered, how can we then discern him, discern them? So secondly, Jesus wants them to, us to know them by their devilish deeds. Know that they're deceitful, but also know their deeds. And, and he gives this illustration here in verses 16 through the end of mistaken identity. Mistaken identity. The imagery he uses here means a lot more to the original audience than it would mean to us today. In Palestine, there was a certain thorn bush called buckthorn, which had these little berries that from a distance, they look like little grapes. And so even if you look at the bush, you can mistake in it for a grape, although it's a buckthorn. There was also a thistle that had flower that from a distance might look like a fig. The point is that there may be a superficial resemblance between the true and the false, but when you closely inspect, when you look 
and analyze, you discover that a buckthorn will not produce grapes. This is what he's saying here in verses 16 through the end. You will know them by their fruits. Twice, he says in verse 16 and in verse 20, you will know them by their fruit. Listen, going back to the earlier illustration in, in verse 15, here's what Jesus is saying ultimately. A wolf cannot produce wool. A wolf will never produce wool. Sure, he can be dressed in wool, but it's not his nature to produce it, to make new, to cause growth, to bear fruit. You will know them, he says, by what they produce. And, and think about this. Usually when we talk about fruit, we go straight to morality. You got to do this and you'll do this and you won't do this and you'll abstain from this and you will be a righteous and moral person. When we talk about fruit, that's what we talk about for the most part. And so this is the temptation here when Jesus talks about their fruit, just go to morality. What do they do? Do they lie? Do they steal? How do they look? But what is the context? What is the focus here? The focus church is the gospel. It's the narrow gate. It's ultimately Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, if you know the true gospel, if you know Christ, if you've entered through and are actually on the way, you will produce a fruit after its kind. Think about this. Those who are transformed by Christ, those who are transformed by the gospel and therefore they make much of Christ, they worship Christ by remaining in Christ, they bear a fruit that what? Reflects Jesus Christ. Christ. Look what Titus, Paul in Titus chapter 2 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. There it is, salvation, grace, beautiful, you know the Lord. What's the effect? Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. When you come to know the way and enter through the gate, you get changed. That is what he's saying. There's a certain transformation. They are different. Why? Because they know me. They've gone through the narrow gate. Notice your nature is changed. You become a good tree that bears good fruit. Naturally, you're a bad tree that bears evil, literally evil fruit. Right? We're all born this way. We all enter the road, the, the wide road upon birth. And we stay there until the Lord rescues us, opens up our eyes to see and to behold and begin to treasure Jesus Christ. And when the gospel penetrates through, you get regenerated by the spirit so that, check this out, the root is changed and then the fruit is changed. The nature, the root first has to be affected. The type of tree you are, and then you will begin to produce. If there's no change in the root, there is absolutely no change in the fruit. But the false teachers, Jesus says, they deny Jesus. They deny Christ. They advocate for another way. That's why he says you will know them. Their lack of fruit will be evident. Why? Because they don't submit to the lordship of Christ. They don't submit to the gospel of Christ. And therefore, instead of submitting to the gospel and allowing the gospel to change them, they take the gospel and they change the gospel. And he says, to their own destruction. To their own destruction. And so he also wants us to know in verse 19, know their destructive destiny. Look what happens. Friends, listen to what Jesus is saying. Anyone who widens the gate and widens the path, anyone who legitimizes any other way but the way of Christ, like the Pharisees that teach another way, that person is a false prophet whose end is eternal destruction. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. Already in this gospel, John the Baptist 
he warned the people about the damning consequences of hypocrisy. And in 4.7, he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to him for baptism without manifesting a change in heart. And he admonishes them and saying, listen, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because if you don't, the acts of God's judgment is already up in the air. And if you don't bear fruit, if there's no regeneration, if no seed of the gospel had penetrated the soil so as to give new sprout and to give new fruit, then you will be cut down and thrown into fire. This is sobering truth. That is why he says, beware, be on guard, carefully. Think about what you believe. Think about what version of the gospel you subscribe to. There's only one true gospel, and that is all of Christ and nothing else. Beware of false prophets. Let me ask you this. What is the function of the prophet? What is the function of the prophet? The prophet spoke on behalf of God to people, right? They revealed God's word, God's will to God's people. If you look in the Old Testament, and if you've been reading through the Old Testament, you will find out that what the prophets did the most was they would point Israel back to God's law. They would go back and they would try to recover the law, the promises of God. And they would reiterate them over and over and over again. And then they would take all of that and they would forecast into the future and says, if you believe, here's how you will be blessed. But if you do not believe, here are the many ways you will be cursed. This is what the prophets did. A prophet is the one who speaks for God. The prophet is the one who speaks on behalf of God and points you to God. They reveal God. Now, let me read something to you. Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, 15 says this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. What is this prophecy about? This prophecy is about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 preaches to his people and says, I am he. That Deuteronomy 18, 15 prophecy that the Lord will send you a prophet, I am he. Don't look anywhere else. I'm the only true prophet who reveals to you the will of the Father. Friends, Anyone who points you in a different direction, denying Christ altogether or adding something to Christ as if he was lacking something is a false prophet whose goal is to deceive you. Don't believe him. Jesus says, run from anyone who says that I am not the one, that that narrow gate is not the gate. Run. Who are you following? Are the people you're being influenced by leading you to Jesus or away from him? It's a very sobering reality. Analyze and consider. Consider why don't these prophets produce good fruit? The answer is because they're not on the vine. They're not plugged into Christ. They don't have a permanent, personal intimate relationship with Christ. They look like they're light, but they're darkness. That's what Jesus continues on in verses 21 and 23 to unpack this idea further. He warns us first about false prophets. And now listen, he warns us about false professors, prophets and professors. Not only should we be aware of false prophets who lead us away from Christ, but we must also beware of false professors who have no relationship with Christ. Listen, both are deceivers. Both deceive, except one deceives from outside, the other deceives from within. Think about this. One Puritan said this, let us not forget, let us not forget that we all have within us a false prophet. The most insidious, cunning, 
and therefore the most dangerous of all. Let us not forget that within us we have a false prophet, the most insidious and therefore the most dangerous of all. So let us test, beware of false professors who look, who lack personal relationship with Christ. Let me ask you this. What would you say is the scariest passage in the New Testament? What would you say is the scariest passage? I'm sure if we were to poll them, all of you here this morning, we probably won't land on any one particular passage, but this passage here, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, will probably rate among one of the highest, the most scariest, it's a severe text. It's sobering, think about this, it's sobering to think about hell, right? When you think about hell, you're always analyzing, you're always thinking, okay, do I trust the Lord? How do I get rescued from hell? So this kind of topic, and we should preach more on hell, I think. Um, this kind of topic literally makes you think differently. But it's even more sobering to find out too late that you're going to hell when you thought you were going to heaven. Some people think they're Christians and they call Jesus Lord. Lord, they pray Lord. Some call him Lord, Lord. That's, that's next level. Lord, Lord. And, and they even do mighty things in his name. Miraculous things. And yet they are never truly saved. They are never truly saved. That's why this passage is really scary because Jesus says many, it's another sobering thing, many will come before the throne of Christ and they will find out that they were false professors with all kinds of things to present to the Lord. But look at this, look at this shiny thing, but look at what I did. And he says none of that matters. So this warning about false profession is is really sobering. In this sermon, Jesus had already said some very lofty things about himself that I'm sure it raised an eyebrow or two, like, for instance, 5.17, I fulfilled the law. It's a crazy thing to say. Think about it. I fulfilled the law. I am the only righteous one. Or, Six times in chapter five, he goes on to say, you've heard it's been written or it's been said, right? It's been said, but I tell you, equates himself to scripture. I tell you, here's my explanation. But in verses 21 and 22, Jesus makes another staggering claim which reveals his divinity. He's God. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Verse 22, many will say to me on that day. What day? The day of judgment. Everybody knows this. The original audience, they know this. There will be a day when everybody will stand before the righteous judgment of Christ, but before whom they will stand. Up to this point, everyone's thinking, we're going to stand before God. And Jesus comes and he says, you're going to give me an account. Everyone who says to me, Jesus, Lord, Lord. You will be confronted by Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. But notice something else here in verse 21. Look at this. Not everyone who says to me, but he who does the will of my Father. So you would expect something like, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, but he who does my will. He doesn't say that. He says me, but my Father's will. Why does he say that? You can call me Lord, but don't obey the Father, so you will be cast out. Listen, for the first time in Matthew, in no vague terms, Jesus equates himself to God. His will and the Father's will are the same. Why is this important? Well, think about this. Remember, we got to go back to hear the way the original audience would hear his disciples and, and the Jews that were there. He's speaking to them and the Jews, they believe that the Lord is one. There is one Lord. 
Like Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Now this new prophet comes on the scene and he declares, I am the Lord. So it's important that his people understand that this is not a random prophet proclaiming a random message from a different God or a different law or a different righteousness. Jesus is pointing to a natural connection between what the son wills and what the father wills because they're the same. John 10 30 says, I and the father are one. And if you need further proof, listen to what Jesus says in Luke 6. Luke 6, 46, he says this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So in Matthew 7, he says, and do not do what the Father wills. But here he says, and do not do what I say. It's the same. There's only one Lord. Jesus is one with the Father. So as Lord, Jesus calls us to examine ourselves Beware of false professions. And I want you to see three things again in these verses as we make our way to the end. Number one is this, profession without faith is false. Profession without faith is false. Not everyone who confesses Christ as Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the hard truth. That is the hard truth. Your words, they certainly matter. Your profession matters, friends. Just a few weeks ago, we had a baptism here where we had three professors who professed that Jesus is their Lord. And we said, amen. Why? Because the scripture commands us to proclaim Jesus as our Lord, to confess him before men. But it's not enough. It's not enough. Not everyone who has an emotional experience and this connection to him will enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Look at this. Lord, Lord. They cry out. They're enthusiastic about it. It's not just some Baptist sitting in the back pew there murmuring something that only he can understand. These guys are passionate. They're jumping around. It's an emotional outcry. Lord, Lord, don't, don't we know? Don't you know us? I mean, look at all, everything that we're, we've done for you. What do you mean? But this is not enough. What's enough? What gets you in? He says, he who does the will of my father. This is the mark of the one who enters church. He who does something. He's marked by a lifestyle that is preoccupied with the doing of God's will. That's the one who gets it. Professing, yes. Response, absolutely. But the doing of God's will. So then we naturally come to a question, right? Is Jesus teaching then salvation by works? So you're telling me I got to do something? Tell me what to do, I'll do it. Is he saying, obey little Johnny and you'll go to heaven? Is that what he's saying? Well, no. Jesus is not saying if you obey, you will enter. Remember the context. Jesus is the pr true prophet. He's pointing to himself, the narrow gate, and he says, enter through it and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. If you do, you will find life. This road leads to life everlasting. This road leads into the kingdom. So then, is doing the will of the Father equivalent to entering through the narrow gate? Doing the will of the Father is equivalent to entering through the narrow gate? I'm glad you asked. Check this out. Think about this. Who alone does the Father's will? Who alone does the Father's will? Jesus. Perfectly. Up to a T, everything. John chapter 4, John 5, and John 6. Look at this. One verse from each chapter. 434. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. That's all I do, Jesus says. John 530. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 638. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Church, Jesus is the only one who perfectly obeyed the will of the Father. And because the rest of us fail and continue to fail, 
Man, this message is good news for us. This message is good news for us, the believer, and this message is good for the unbeliever who is here this morning. Not everyone, but he who does the will of God. Look at the demand. You must be perfect. 548, but you're not, and I'm not. Aha, but he is. That's the point. He is. Jesus is perfect. He did everything there was to do. He did the Father's will. He says, my Father. First time he calls him my, here in this sermon, my will, my Father's will. Doing the will of God has everything to do with Jesus, friends, and not your doing or your work. In fact, let me show you something else in Matthew here. In two other places, Matthew speaks of doing God's will. Matthew 12 and Matthew 21. Go to Matthew 12. This is, uh, this is so foundational for us. Matthew 12, the very last verse of Matthew 12 Look what it says here. For whoever does the will of my father. Again, you see that same one. So you're not going to answer because you didn't do it. You didn't do the will. But here it is. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. What does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus here is equating the doing of the father's will to belonging to him as a member of his family what he's doing. His brothers and sisters do the will of the father. They do what the father tells them to do. Why? Because they're his children, right? You fathers, parents, you commend your children to do something and they do it. Why? Because they're your children. They're yours. You don't tell other children what to do, but your children obey you. Why? Because You're their father. And Jesus says, verse 50, whoever does the will is a family member. But look at one other passage, Matthew 21. This gets even more clear here, Matthew 21. Look at verse 30 or 28. Remember the parable, parable of two sons. And Jesus says this, what do you think? A man had two sons and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing. And he said, I will, sir. But he did not go. Question 31, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. Look at this. The doing of the Father's will in verse 21 is equated into getting into the kingdom of God in in that same verse. You see that? Who did the Father's will? And he says, truly I say to you that tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom. Why? Because they believe John's message. What was John's message all about? John was sent to do what? To prepare the way of the Lord. He was sent in order to proclaim to the people to behold and believe in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, you, religious folks, did not believe John. But the prostitutes and tax collectors They did. So how did they, the tax collectors and prostitutes, do the will of God? Well, Jesus says that they did the will of God by believing John's testimony about Jesus and ultimately believed in Jesus. That's how. 
To do the will of God then is to believe in Jesus, to side with him, to be united by faith to the only one who perfectly obeyed the will of God. And if you want one more, John 6, 40, we already read it at the beginning, but Jesus says this, for this is the will of my father. I mean, it doesn't get any more clearer than this. This is the will of my father that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. So have you believed and profess or do you only profess without faith? Faith in Christ. False profession is a profession without faith in Christ. But also it is performance without transformation. Performance without transformation is false. Not everyone who has amazing ministry success and miracles will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says in verse 22, just an amazing display of power prophecy and casting out demons. And guess what? We even did it in your name. We invoked your name when we did this. But this is no sign of faith. This is no sign of genuine Christianity, mainly from the Egyptian magicians to remember Simeon, the magician in Acts 8, performed great miracles, did some amazing things. It's clear, although these guys here, they invoked Jesus' name, they were no followers of Christ. Yes, the Lord could have still performed miracles through them, through the unbelievers. He used Saul before he used Balaam. He even used an animal. Or maybe they did this by the power of the devil. Very well could have been done because he too works a lot of magic. In any case, it is frightening to think that some people regard a supernatural ministry, prophecy, miracle working power, and they will one day stand before the Lord and find out that all they did was lawlessness. Depart from me all who practice lawlessness. Church, it's also frightening to think how close to spiritual reality one may come while not knowing the true essence of it, while not knowing Jesus Christ. You can be so close. You can hang out with the right crowd. You can even be in the congregation who perform great things and you can say, is Jesus in it? And you can look at the power of miracles and you can say, absolutely, look at this. Look what's going on. People are coming. The church is growing. People are getting healed. And then stand at the end and he will tell you, I never knew you. You're very close, but you must go through the door. You must completely rest on Christ. So what ultimately gets you into the kingdom? Who gets you into the kingdom? He says, and then I will declare to them, verse 23, I never knew you. I mean, here is Jesus' promise and our ultimate assurance, church. Those who are relationally connected to Christ will enter the kingdom of heaven. A personal relationship with Christ is what counts. Our salvation and our assurance does not rest on what we profess or how we perform, but on our union with Christ. He says, I never knew you. Isn't it interesting? It doesn't say, depart from me, you never knew me. No, I never knew you. And as most of you know here, the term means this intimate relationship, right? This term to know someone, often used in scripture to speak of sexual relationships with someone. 
And so Jesus says, I do not personally know you. I never, not that I knew you before, but now somehow you slipped, you know. No, I never, even when you were performing things in my name, I never knew you, never had a relationship with you. It works something like this. How many of you know the current president? Most of you here, if not all. You know the current president? Um, Your knowledge of the president, however, bears very little on your attempt to get into the White House. Just because you know the president does not mean that you're going to get in. You may not want to go. But if you do, you won't be able to get in. First of all, there's a fence, I believe, still around. But even if there was no fence, you won't be able to get in. Why? Doesn't matter what you know. Doesn't matter who you know. It's if they know you. That's the point. Do they know you? Your only assurance of getting in is if they know you, not if you know them. And this is what he's saying here. If the president knows you, then you come on in. Come on and enter. And the ultimate question is, does Jesus know you? Are you known? If not, he says, depart from me. And here's our assurance, friends. Listen, if Jesus knows you, he knows you forever. If you trust in Jesus Christ and if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, he knows you forever, always. It's personal with Jesus and the last for all eternity. Friend, are you aware of the influences that are impacting you today? Can you spot those who are leading you away from Jesus? Jesus says you must know and you must beware and you must run away from these influences, but also Are you professing to know Jesus and yet doubt that Jesus knows you because of the lack of this transforming faith? What I want to call you here, he gives us the answer, enter through the narrow gate. Come to me, rest in me, trust me. I took care of everything for you. You just need to surrender to the Lord this morning. Friend, you must know and you must be known. The only ground for entering the kingdom of heaven is a personal relationship with Christ, which is evident by a transformed heart that trusts the Lord for its righteousness. Father, we thank you for this assurance that we have in Christ that we are his because of the faith that you give us. But if there's anyone here who is professing, who's maybe just too busy trying to do things for God, the doing always follow the being. I pray that they would become your children. I pray that they would rest, that they would stop doubting whether they're children of God, whether they're saved, Lord. I pray may they know that you know We thank you for this assurance. We thank you for Jesus who alone fulfills your will perfectly. And in this we stand. We thank you, we praise you, and in Jesus' name, we ask all of these things and pray, amen.